Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastgrads.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. All right, well, good morning and happy new year. So I like this weekend. Here's why I like this weekend. A couple reasons. One, uh, it's a holiday weekend, and so we see who the real Christians are. That's most of you. Um, and we see who they are not. That is the people who usually are sitting up there, right there. Those people, I don't know what they're doing. Well, we should pray for them, okay? Uh, no, um, it's a holiday weekend. I'm glad that you guys came to hang out with us. Now, this last week is actually one of my favorite weeks of the year uh, because it's... Um, at the end of a really chaotic season, so for you, Christmas is probably pretty busy. Um, for the church world, it's really, really busy, and so we have something happening not only every weekend, but it seems like every night of the week, and so uh, it leads all the way up to those Christmas services, and then once we get done with those, it's kind of just like, ah, a little bit of calm, right before the storm begins again in January, you know, and if you're a parent, you know how this goes, as kids get back in school, back in sports, all their hobbies, you got to drive them around, you got work, you got, just life begins, but you have this little moment, like this one week, where you, you kind of have the calm before and after the storm, and I love that, because I don't have anything that I have to be doing, in fact, this is, um, this is, how like I guess ingrained I am that I have to be uh, in church is last weekend we didn't have church services here we had it online but my wife and I decided we should probably still go to church because we don't go enough I guess I don't know and so uh, her her dad is a pastor in the South Bay and so we went to their church and it was great and it was really fun and uh, a cool time my dad actually came with me and we brought, brought a group of folks up there and and it was really good it was cool just to be at church and not have to do anything like they didn't, nobody knew who I was, nobody wanted anything. I just got to sit in church, kind of like you, and just, just hang, you know, it was great. And so, uh, and so we did that, and as I was listening to the sermon, uh, my father-in-law taught about the basics of faith. Kind of the idea is, is, you know, life gets complicated, it gets crazy, it gets chaotic, and so we get distracted, and there's all these things that we need to be doing, and, and once in a while we just have to stop, and we kind of have to go back to the basics of our faith. You know, we got to get back to kind of the core things um, that we need to be doing and thinking and practicing within our faith, the fundamentals, if you will. And so he kind of changed my, I guess, the trajectory of this series that we're going to be doing for the next couple of weeks is we had something else in mind, but that one just really resonated. I thought, you know what, I think that's where we're going to go instead. And so that's what I want to do today is I want to talk about what are the, the basics of being a Christian, and if you've been a Christian for a long time, and you're like, oh, geez, this is not for me. It is for you, okay? Because everybody needs to go back to the basics at some point. And if you aren't a Christian, this is going to be a great series for you to learn what it means to be a Christian. Since the very beginning, uh, the church has been trying to answer questions like this, where they're trying to take these really complicated um, doctrines or beliefs and boil them down to simple statements. They're called creeds. And so there's different creeds that has been produced throughout church history. You have them on the Bible, on God, uh, on, on Christian living. And so we can go all the way back to the beginning of the faith. And the earliest Christian creed is very simple. Jesus is Lord. That was the first one. Now, there's other ones that are a little bit more detailed. You find one in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul talks about um, Jesus' death and resurrection and all the eyewitnesses that, that saw it. 
And then you have other famous creeds that were developed throughout uh, church history. You have the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, Westminster Confession of Faith, things like that. And what they're doing is they're taking these, these really big theological concepts, and they're just boiling them down to like one paragraph. Here is what it means to be a Christian, or here is what we believe as Christians. And so that's kind of what I want to do, is I want to create a very informal creed that gives us the, the basics of what it means to be a Christian, just through the next few weeks. Just boil it down to, to maybe even just a few simple words for us to remember. So the first thing I would do, if I'm trying to figure out what it means to be a Christian, is I would have to define what a Christian is. And it seems like a simple thing, but when you begin to write out a simple definition of what a Christian is, it's not as easy as you might believe. There was a series of um, New York Times interviews, and one of their uh, more popular writers sat down with different Christian leaders, and he asked them this simple question, am I a Christian? And the interview would be them asking him questions back and forth, trying to to figure out if he is a Christian or not. And depending on who he interviewed, they would have wildly different answers. Some people would say, oh yes, you're most definitely a Christian. Other people would say, no, no, you're not a Christian at all. And it became clear that there's no simple or concise definition of what a Christian is. One of the ways you, you can tell this is if you look throughout popular culture at all the people who call themselves Christians. Let's just take like, let's just take like influential people, famous people. Politicians, musicians, actors, all those kinds of folks, all the ones who claim to be Christians, and you put them all together, what would they have in common? Probably wouldn't be the same beliefs, wouldn't be the same ethics or, or morals, wouldn't be the same lifestyle. It's almost as if you could believe and, and live any way that you want and still call yourself a Christian at the end of the day. And so that doesn't really help us very much. So, one of the reasons why I think it's hard to define what a Christian is, is because Jesus never defined what a Christian is. In fact, Jesus never even heard the term Christian before, which might be news to you. You're going, wait a minute, I thought he started this whole thing. He did, but he didn't start with the word Christian. It was actually a label put on the early church by people who were on the outside looking in. And so here's how it happened. Uh, Acts 11.25 says this, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So Antioch was um, kind of a it was a diverse place. It was where people from all over the world would come. There's a, a marketplace there, and they could trade. And so there was all different kinds of people there. And amongst these people, there was a small Jewish sect where they had some strange beliefs, and they wouldn't have stuck out because they weren't powerful. They weren't influential. There wasn't a great number of them. But people began to take notice of this small group because they were different than all the other groups. See, all the other groups within that culture, they kind of stayed with people who were like themselves. If you're rich, you stay with rich people. If you're poor, you stay with poor people. Depending on your ethnicity, you probably gravitate towards people of that ethnicity or your religious beliefs. But this group was different because this group broke down all of those barriers. You had rich people and poor people coming together. You had, um, you had different ethnicities. You had different ages. You had di there was something that held them all together and broke down all of the barriers. And people began to take notice how not only they, they did life together, but they loved one another. That was so different. And so as they were trying to figure out, what is the deal? How do we describe this group of people? We can't, by their ethnicity, well, let's call them Christians. 
That's what we'll call them. They are Christians. Now, if you break down the word, very simple, Christ, obviously is the Greek word for Messiah, the anointed one. And then the I-A-N in Christian means the belonging to the party of. So the definition would be a Christian is someone who belongs to the party of Jesus. Some of you guys are like, yeah, I like the party for Jesus. That's what's up. No, someone who belongs to the party of Jesus. And it was actually a satirical nickname given um, by the Greeks to various groups. And so you had people who supported uh, Augustus. They were Augustinians or people who were loyal to Pompey, Pompeians. Um, but when we hear this idea or this, I, I guess the, the term, the party of Jesus, the first thing that comes to our mind is political parties. That's probably the party that we would most closely identify with, unfortunately, is we live in a democracy. That's a great gift. And part of our responsibility is we get to vote. And, um, and part of our voting process is figuring out, well, which party am I going to support? And so uh, during this, this last election season, um, no matter who you are and what you believe, you had to decide if you were going to support one candidate or one party. And maybe you think, you know what, I don't support any of them. Okay, that was your choice. But at the end of the day, you had to figure out which one do I most closely align with? Because there's got to be things that I like and dislike about whatever party or, or uh, politician is running for office. And so I'm going to find the one that is not perfectly aligned with me, but I'm going to find the one that is most closely aligned with the things that I believe. Of course, there's going to be things that I disagree with, I don't like, and I wish they didn't believe or they didn't say. I think that that's how a lot of Americans think about faith, is they think, well, faith is kind of like politics in that um, I belong to this political party and I belong to this religion. I'm a part of the Jesus party. And so although there's a lot of things that I don't agree with Jesus and the Jesus party and a lot of things that I don't like, that's the one that I most closely align with if I have to choose one. Or you choose a different one. You could say, well, I'm a humanist, and so that's the party that I most uh, closely align with, or not. And this is my favorite new term, is an apatheist. Couldn't care less about religion, don't care about any of that stuff, and so I, I identify as a, a nothing, an apatheist. And so we pick and we choose the things that we like, just like we do in politics. And it, I think it goes even further than this is, although um, this is going to be surprising to you guys, people have strong opinions about politics these days. No, I know, I know, I'm surprised as well. Uh, and a lot of people would prefer that you keep your political opinions to yourself. <laughs> that's not happening, but that's what a lot of people would prefer is, hey, you have strong opinions, I have strong opinions. Keep that private to yourself. Don't bother me with it. Well, that's how people feel about faith as well. Great, you can believe what you want to believe. That's up to you. You can have strong opinions, but I prefer if you just keep that to yourself. And if you bring it out in the open, we're probably going to argue about it. And so we privatize our faith. But see, here's the problem is that when Jesus started this movement, and we're going to talk about what that is, when he started it, he didn't want to start another party, definitely not another political party, nor a religious party that you could identify with, that you could some support, you could take some and leave some. Now, he didn't want you just to be a part of this Jesus party. He had something far more, I would say, intense in mind is he didn't want to create a bunch of Christians. That was something that people were looking on the outside in and saying, no, no, that's what you guys are. No, no, he had something much more intentional in mind when he started his movement. So let's, uh, let's look at one story real quick. And this story, I think, illustrates what Jesus came to do. 
is he came not just to take sides, he came to take over. And we see this in all of his interactions. As Jesus comes and he says, no, I don't come so that I can sway people to one position. I came to take over. And so um, there's a, there's a, if you don't know the Bible, there's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those tell the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. All of his ministry, all the stories that you know about Jesus are all from those four books. And um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have very similar stories. One of my favorites is Matthew. And so I want to look in the, the book of Matthew. Not that there's anything special about this particular story, but I think it illustrates the point that we're trying to make here, is that Jesus didn't come to take sides, but he came to take over. So uh, Matthew describes the first day that he meets Jesus. It's at the very beginning of his ministry, and he's out teaching and preaching and doing miracles, and he's starting to, um, he doesn't have all the disciples, he doesn't have all 12. He's starting to, uh, starting to form that group. Here's what happens in Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus went on from there, and so right before this, Jesus was just healed uh, paralytic, and, uh, and he moves on. He says, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax, tax collector's booth. So if you're not a church person, um, tax collector, they're like the bottom of the barrel. They're the outcasts of society. Is they're not only seen as cheats because they have, um, what they've done is they've been able to purchase the right to collect taxes on behalf of Rome. And what they do is they go and they collect these taxes, they get paid well for it, and then they overcharge the people, and so they steal money from them. And they're working on behalf of the enemy. They're, they're the Jewish people taxing Jews on behalf of the Romans. And so they're liars, they're cheats, they're no good, nobody likes them. I was trying to figure out, how would I describe this kind of person in today's society? Like, what would it be like to hang out with this kind of person? Um, the best that I could come up with, and this is like, well, here, let me read this. Here's what Jesus says to him. He says, follow me. Okay, let me describe what this would look like. Jesus is a rabbi. He's religious. He's righteous. He's called a couple other guys like Peter already, and they're following him. And you get a little bit of insight in that series, The Chosen. I've talked about it before. In like what an outcast Matthew would be, because not only does the people in society not like him, his own family doesn't like him. Like he is the black sheep. He's not allowed at family dinners. So what would be the type of person that would be difficult to hang out with in public? Here's the best I could come up with for me. And if this is you, we could still be friends. I would imagine it would be like having a friend who has a giant swastika tattoo right here on their neck. Okay, this is just funny. Like you go and your buddies and you're hanging out and you're going, okay, we should invest in turtlenecks because it's becoming difficult for us to hang out in public. Get a lot of stares, a lot of questions, kind of wondering what, what is the deal here? Well, that's what it'd be like hanging out with Matthew. Everybody knows who he is. They know what he's done. They know what he's about. And so Peter's probably thinking, Jesus, I just left my family business to come in to hang out with you, and then you start to call Matthew along with us. One, I'm not feeling so special anymore, if you're calling people like this. The other is, I don't want to be seen with him. He is an embarrassment. He's ruining my rep. If we were reading the uh, Gospels for the first time, I think that this phrase would stick out. Follow me. Because Jesus gives this invitation to, to a lot of people. And there's nothing in common between these people. Like, they're young and they're old. They're religious and irreligious. Moral, immoral. It's, it's as if that when Jesus gives this invitation to follow him, it's not, 
It's not based on any kind of conditions. There's nothing that they have to do or say. He doesn't say like, okay, if you shape up, if you become religious, if you will kind of start living a more moral lifestyle, then you can come and you can follow me. So get back to me once you kind of got your life on track. No, Matthew was in the middle of collecting taxes. And yet he says, follow me. All he had to decide was if he was going to say yes or no. This seems to be at the core of what Jesus' message is, is something about following him. It's a phrase repeated all, all the time, and it seems to be a turning point for these people uh, in their lives. So what exactly did he mean when he said, follow me? What Jesus was inviting Matthew to do was not to become a Christian, right? Because we've already decided. We don't even know what that means. You could do and be anything and call yourself a Christian. What he was inviting Matthew to do when he said, follow me, was he's saying, become my disciple, And there's a rich history within uh, Judaism about discipleship. And and it's not a loosely defined term like Christian. It's something that everybody knew what they were getting into. A disciple is somebody who is a follower, a pupil, an adherent, a learner, an apprentice. As Jewish children would grow up around five or six, they would begin to memorize the scriptures. And they would continue that education until they were about 12 or 13. And the very top of the class, the the best students would be able to continue on with their education. The rest would go and they would get into probably the family business. And as they continued on in their education, those who were left at the very end, the top of the class, they would go and they would try to find themselves a rabbi. And they would say to this rabbi that they want to be their disciple, that they want to follow him so that they can learn and be just like this this rabbi. Like it would be a full-time job where they walk around and they kind of figure out, okay, now how does this rabbi view the world? How do they interpret the scriptures? Because that's exactly what I want to do. What I want to do is I want to become a, a replica of my rabbi. Eventually they would become so much like their rabbi that they would be a representative of this rabbi in the world. And so when Jesus gives this invitation to follow me, this is what he's inviting him into. Not into a party, a Jesus party. No, 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 no. Into a discipleship where you're going to learn to become just like me. So Jesus calls Matthew to follow me. Now this is an incredible honor and privilege, but a huge commitment. But these two simple words would change Matthew's life forever. And Matthew got up and followed him. I think sometimes we try to make faith more complicated than it really is. Like, this is kind of it right here. (laughs) Jesus says, follow me, and I follow. That's it. Like, that's the whole big, we try to make it so complicated, but, and and when we do, we're acting a little bit like the Pharisees, because as the Pharisees are watching all this happen, they're thinking, can't be that easy. No way. Do you know what we had to do to become rabbis? Do you know what our disciples have to do? This guy has done nothing to earn this. He's not a good person. He hasn't done any good deeds. He hasn't earned the right to become a disciple. He has done nothing to earn the invitation to follow Jesus. See, all the other religions of the world say, if you just work hard enough, if you're a good enough person, then maybe God will love you. Then maybe you can go to heaven one day. But Jesus just simply says, no, you don't have to do any of that. All I ask is for you to follow me. There's nothing that you can do or, have, or do or not do that will exclude you from my invitation. Everybody's invited. Follow me. Simple question, yes or no. Matthew didn't know it yet, but the thing that would make him worthy was nothing to do with him. 
it was actually all to do with Jesus. And he wouldn't know this until the very end, but the thing that would make him worthy of following Jesus was what Jesus was going to do on his behalf, which of course points to Jesus' death and resurrection. But what did Matthew know about uh, Jesus at this point? Chances are uh, that he had heard about Jesus. Jesus kind of made a, a lot of commotion. People were talking about him. I mean, if you can do miracles and you have these teachings called parables that people find interesting but don't really understand, people are going to begin talking. And so Matthew had probably heard about Jesus. He knew who he was. It wasn't some random guy who just walked up and went, follow me, and you're like, who are you? No, he knew. He knew who this Jesus was. But he didn't understand the depth of who Jesus was. This would become a process as he began to follow Jesus. He had a lot to learn about him, and it would start this day, uh, that day. Verse 10, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. So the first thing that Matthew learns about Jesus is that Jesus was very comfortable with people who were nothing like him. And people who were nothing like him were very comfortable with Jesus, which is different than all of the other religious leaders. It's like he wasn't concerned about his reputation. He didn't play by the same rules as everybody else. He had this self-understanding. He had this security about him in which he could be with people who were the bottom of the barrel outcasts of society, and yet it didn't affect him at all. Like he was totally comfortable with who he was and what he had come to do. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, of course, this was less of a question, more of an accusation, but I want to be sympathetic to the Pharisees. They asked, why would a religious leader who was supposed to be pursuing holiness be hanging out with these sinners? All right, let's imagine this. You go and you're running some errands after this, and as you're running some errands, you have to go through a neighborhood that you normally wouldn't find yourself in, and as you're driving down the street, you notice that Doyle and Cody are standing outside what looks to be a crack house. It would probably raise some eyebrows, right? You would go, well, that's, that's strange. Cody and Doyle go to a crack house? And I would say, look, if you do crack, aren't you skinny? <laughs> that's not our problem. So clearly, like, we're not there for <laughs> buying any products. Um, no, that's not what I would say. Uh, you would, you would write, uh, probably rightfully start to ask some questions. Well, this isn't kind of the context that I normally would see a person like a, a pastor in, and so what's going on here? And that's sort of what the Pharisees are saying is, look, you're sitting at this house hanging out with these people. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So imagine sitting there, and you're Matthew, and you have Jesus over, and the Pharisees are coming after you and saying, you know, why, Jesus, would you hang out with those people? And Jesus' response is not, they're homies, they're my friends. They're, no, no, his response is, look at them. They're sick. They're messed up. Do you see these people? If I were Matthew, I'd go, um, time out, Jesus. Uh, you know we can hear you, right? Like, you're at my house eating my food with my friends, and then you're going to throw me under the bus like that? Jesus' response would probably have been, Matthew, you're a tax collector. She's a prostitute. That's her pimp, and that's a drug dealer. <laughs> Are you not a mess? <laughs> you're like, no, yeah, I'm definitely a mess. I'm, I'm a, say it out loud. 
I'm a mess. I am a mess, Jesus. I am a mess. This interaction, and just this one line right here, we learn, um, we learn two very important things about Jesus. The first one is that Jesus believed that people are sick with sin. We want to think that humanity's fundamental problem is something out there. It's injustice. It's inequity. It's poor education. It's bad self-esteem. It's corrupt governments. It's whatever. We want to come up with, these are the reasons why we are the way that we are. And Jesus comes along and he says, no, mm -mm. those are symptoms. The real underlying issue, because if we fixed all of those things, do you think the world would be a perfect place? No, because you and I still live in it. We're the issue. Those are symptoms. Great, let's fix them. But the real cause is that you have this sickness and it's called sin. And sin is simply the breaking of God's laws. It's a rebellion against our creator and everybody has been infected with this sin sickness. It's a part of our human nature. It's almost like, and I don't know if this hits too close to home, it's almost like a virus that gets passed around the world. I'm going to leave it there. <laughs> and it has infected each one of us. And what's interesting is we live in a culture that is unwilling to look into the mirror and say, I, you know, I am broken. I am sinful. It's different. Most of human history, humanity has looked in the mirror and said, I think we have a problem. Now, they may have come up with different reasons why they have problems, but, most of, but we live in a culture now in which we say, there's no problem here. In fact, we go the other way, and we have now begun to celebrate our sickness. And if you don't celebrate it along with me, I'm offended. There's something within us that's, that's broken, and if we are going to be honest with ourselves, we know this. We know that deep down inside, there's something wrong with us. Like, even if you're not a church person, you don't believe in God, you don't believe in the Bible, just think about this for a moment. In, in your heart of hearts, you have a moral standard, things that you believe are right and wrong, ways that you should behave, and you don't even live up to those standards, let alone what the Bible has to say. You've never woken up the next morning and gone, oh no, my head hurts, and I regret a lot of what happened last night. Why is that? Well, you would say, well, it's because nobody's perfect. I'll say exactly. Nobody's perfect, meaning nobody is healthy. Everybody has a sickness. So some of us, we can hold it together, um, and we can white-knuckle it through life. You know, we're middle class, we're married, we have some kids, we got a mortgage, we got a job, and so we're kind of holding it together. And so when we think about people who are broken and sick, what we think about is those other people out there. You know who I'm talking about, those people. But what you're saying is, is kind of like, you know, I'm not sick because I can point at someone who is really sick. I only have stage three cancer, but they have stage four cancer, which means I'm healthy. What? No. Just because your sickness may not look the same as somebody else's sickness doesn't make you healthy. You're still sick at the end of the day. Some of us, we, we realize that um, we are sick and that we're broken. Like we look at our lives and we look at the the, the, the train wreck that has been our decisions, our relationships, and our habits, and where we have ended up, and it, there's no doubt. We know. You're preaching to the choir. My life is a mess. I have made a mess of it. There's no disputing it. The problem is, is that you think you can fix it still. Like, I've made a mess of my life, but I am, this year's going to be the year that I put it all together. I'm mending those relationships. I'm getting in shape. I'm 
you still think that you're going to fix this, huh? One more self-help book, and you're going to have it together. One more podcast that motivates you, and you're going to do it this year. No. See, Jesus comes and he says, look, um, you have to admit that not only you are sick, but that you cannot fix yourself. You can't fix this. Guys, we are so guilty of this. We think that we'll just walk it off. Like, uh, there was a guy here last night, and he reminded me of a story a few years back. Um, I, I thought it would be a good idea to take my kids to one of those uh, trampoline parks, you know? And I thought, I'm a cool dad. I could do this, you know? Let's bust it out. And so I was uh, jumping on one of the trampolines, and I feel this pop in my knee. And, oh, that's bad. So, so I went to lunch, and because uh, I just eat my feelings whenever things are going bad. Go to lunch. And um, I wake up the next morning, and it is not better. And I think, you know what? It's, I probably just need to ignore it, and it'll go away. Because that's usually how things work, is if there's something that's broken, if you ignore it, it fixes itself. It's amazing how that works. And so I continue to, for the next week and two weeks and three weeks, hobble along until my friend, who was here last night, he goes, dude, it's not getting better. You can't walk it off. You need to go and get this thing looked at. And I go, no, 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 I got it. Two more Tylenol, Done. Eventually, two months later, he calls me and he goes, I've made you an appointment with one of my friends who is a, a doctor. Here is the address. Here is the time and date. And I said, are you paying for it? And they said, no. And so I said, okay, fine, I'll go. I'm there for 30 seconds. The guy touches my knee, wiggles it around and goes, yeah, your ACL is shot. That thing is gone. I go, no, what does that do again? Do I need that? Is that an extra part or can I get away with? No, okay. See, what happens is when you finally admit that you are broken, and that you can't fix yourself, what you'll do is you'll go and you'll find a doctor who can. The Pharisees, they would have admitted that they were sick. They knew it. They knew that they couldn't live up to all these laws and all these rules, but what they thought was, I'm going to try a little harder. I am sick and I am broken, but you know what's going to save me? My self-righteousness. That's what's going to make me better. Jesus comes along and he says, no, you have to admit that you're sick and admit that you cannot fix this yourself. That's where I come in is you are sick and you need a savior. And that's what he has come to do. And so this is the second learning I think we have here is that Jesus believed that he was the solution to our sickness. Once you finally admit that you need help and you can't do it, you need to find a doctor. And he says, and I am that doctor. I'm the doctor who's here to save sinners. Now, Matthew doesn't know how quite yet. All he's been invited to do so far is to follow me, follow in my footsteps, learn to see the world the way that I do, learn to trust in me. But eventually, there would be this exchange that would happen where Jesus would be on the cross and he would die and he would resurrect and then that would be the way in which he could take away all of our sin sickness as he says, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna trade places with you. You can't fix yourself, only I can. So I'm gonna live the life that you could never live, the perfect life. But instead of getting all the glory and honor that I deserve, I'm gonna take the punishment that you deserve. I was trying to think of, how do, how do I make sense of this? I've been saying this message my entire life. You're a church person. You've heard this message your entire life. How do I make sense of this? Here's the, the image that popped into my mind. Is if you're a, a parent, um, this will make sense to you. It's if you've ever had a child who is either sick or injured, and they're just in pain, it's the, one of the worst things in the world to, to see. And we've either said it or we've thought it. We said, if I could trade places with you right now, I would. 
Oh, I would take that pain on myself. I would make that pain go away. I would experience that for you right now if I could just trade places with you. We obviously can't do that. We're human, but God can. And that's exactly what happened, is he came and he said, I see the suffering. I see the sickness that the sin has on your soul. And so what I will do is I will trade places with you. I will take it upon myself on the cross. And that's what he did. And all he asks is, follow me. John 3, 16, one of the, probably the most famous verse in the Bible, and uh, one that's been repeated a couple thousand times in my house recently because the kids are learning it and memorizing it in their classes, summarizes what I'm talking about like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He says this, he says, if you will believe in me, Put your faith, put your trust, put your hope in me, not yourself, not that you're gonna fix it. You admit that you're broken, you can't do it, only I can. If you believe in me, then you will be saved. And so if I were gonna boil this all down to our very simple creed that we talked about into like maybe just two words, here would be the two words of what it means to be a Christian. The first one is believe and the second is follow. Believe that Jesus is my savior and then follow. Follow in his footsteps become more like him. And so if we're kind of doing a little bit of a self-evaluation this next year, or maybe this coming week for this next year, that would be the two questions that I would ask. Very, very simple. Not do I believe all the right doctrines, not do I believe, all that stuff's great, but just start with the basics. First one, do I believe in Jesus? Like, have I put my trust in him? And the second is, am I following? Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this church, and, uh, for all the, the people here who gather to worship you. Um, Lord, it is so encouraging that we get to come together and we get to reflect on who you are and what you have done for us, Lord God. But we also want to take a little bit of time to do some self-evaluation as we prepare for this coming year before all the, the chaos and, the, and all, all, the, all the complicated things that we may have to navigate in this coming uh, year, Lord God, that we would begin with the basics. There's this very simple questions do I believe and am I following? And so, Lord God, if there's any areas in our life in which maybe we haven't fully, we haven't fully let go of yet, we haven't fully trusted you, or there's an aspect of our life in which we haven't, haven't begun following you in, Lord, I just pray that this would be a great start for us here, that we would be people who believe and follow. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys stand with me. Thank you guys so much for being here this weekend. Um, be here next weekend as uh, Doyle continues on our series. Other than that, have a great week. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings. Or you can always join us live at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.